All right, listeners, to start the show today, we are going to play a little game of Two Truths and a Lie. Today's episode will be covering the Marvel acquisition by Disney, and we are going to throw out the Two Truths and a Lie right now, and we will tell you which one is a lie at the end of Acquisition History and Facts. So get ready to predict. Number one. For a brief stretch ending in an internal Time Warner investigation, the president of DC Comics acquired a large position in Marvel stock. Number two, famed corporate raider and comic book villain Carl Icahn once made a play to gain control of Marvel from bankruptcy. Number three, Marvel owned Fleer, the baseball card company, and was affected in a huge way by the 1994 Major League Baseball strike. Which is the lie... You be the judge. Who got the truth? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Who got the truth now? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Sit me down. Say it straight. Another story on the way. Who got the truth? Welcome back to episode 26 of Acquired, the podcast about technology acquisitions. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. Today's episode is Disney's 2009 acquisition of Marvel. It really completes the saga for us here at Acquired, where our first episode was the Disney acquisition of Pixar, then our sixth episode was Disney's acquisition of Lucasfilm. And all three of these, I believe, will have pretty similar tech themes, and uh, and David, I think, will uh, we'll really be able to kind of understand Disney's strategy and what their portfolio looks like uh, these days. Yeah, this is... Uh... Um, this will, I feel like I always say this, but this will be a fun one. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And, uh, get, and kind of a fun one here, here going into the holidays. It's a, uh, it's a nice one to tie up the year. Totally. I, and, um, speaking of Disney's triumvirate of, uh, IP acquisitions, I am pretty excited about Rogue One. <laughs> yeah, I thought you'd bring that up. So I rewatched the trailer, uh, right before we started recording. Awesome. Awesome. I can't wait. Yeah, uh, me neither. For, for listeners who, uh, if, if you're wondering, um, I'm not sure if it actually will sound any different, but this is the first time David and I are recording remotely. Uh, David's in, in California right now. In the, in the heart of Silicon Valley. Indeed. All right, well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were already a pretty impressive kind of Series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual flesh and blood human people out there, that's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two, Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them, run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny, I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. 
if you look at the visa numbers, I just pulled up my visa notes, Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's what, 200 times as much throughput at StatSig than at Visa? On the customer side, StatSig added arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and friends of the show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse native experimentation, and product analytics. Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. All right. Well, um, we don't really have uh, too much before the show. Do you want to just dive right in? Yeah, let's jump in. So uh, this, uh, I can't remember. We've done so many of these episodes now, but this might be the earliest back in time that we're starting our acquisition history and facts. Um, oh, are, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think it is. We are going back to 1939, almost, uh, what is it, almost 80 years ago, um, when a fellow named Martin Goodman founded a company that he called Timely Publications in New York City. Very timely. Uh <laughs> Goodman um, was a pulp magazine publisher, and he wanted to get on the gravy train of the fast, burgeoning comic book industry um, that was starting to take off. And so he started Timely Publications as part of his publishing empire. And the first comic book that Timely published was called Marvel Comics Number One which came out in October 1939, and it included the Human Torch and the Submariner, which would be Marvel comic book heroes for a uh, long time to come. And uh, Yeah, the, su- the Submariner is a little, uh, a little bit more of a deep one. Yeah, that's that's that's. I see what you're doing there. <laughs> it's hey, it's, <laughs> it's it's pretty cool that it's uh, that the very first issue was called Marvel Comics. And yeah, I, I think that you know th- through a uh, you know the a crazy history that we're about to hear of of uh, um, all sorts of different ownership structures and consolidations and unbundling and rebundling keeps the same name. Yeah, well, uh, interesting though they didn't actually change the name of the company to marvel comics until 1961 so um 22 years later uh but the very first uh comic book that they published was called marvel comics um and apparently it was a big success uh it sold almost a million copies uh which um i think is a lot for a comic book probably especially a lot for a comic book in 1939 um but uh but the company timely would uh go on to do quite well, um, create, you know, many of the iconic comic book superheroes and villains that we all know and think of today. Uh, Captain America was the first really big one that they created in 1941, um, which was, uh, well, I guess World War II was going on at that point in time, but um, the U.S. either hadn't entered yet or was just about to enter World War II. Um, 
the Fantastic Four, uh, Spider-Man, um, the X-Men, Iron Man, Thor, the whole, many, many others. Lots of, uh, basically, uh, as a, um, I love superheroes, but not a, I'm not a huge comic book aficionado. Uh, so as a like casual comic book fan, like everybody I know kind of except Superman and Batman, uh, came yeah. from Marvel. And who at like Wonder Woman. Yeah. Wonder uh, Woman too. Yep. Yeah, that was also it's, it's, DC it's, comics. It's pretty much the whole crew. Yeah. It's like DC had, you know, the big Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and then everything else is, is Marvel. Um, and, uh, so they, they go on, they create, many of these uh many of these characters um and then in 1961 like we said they actually changed the name of the company to marvel comics um also in 1961 uh the editor of marvel uh who was a man named stan lee um who actually started at the company as an office assistant uh he was apparently he was apparently martin goodman's uh wife's cousin and uh Started at the company in the early days as an office assistant and became um, sort of the um, the the spiritual head of uh, the direction of of Marvel and, and the comics. Um, he and, and very briefly, actually, the the president of the studio, right? Yep, yep. It's like one one or two years in there. Yeah, um, uh, a a towering figure in Marvel history. Um, he uh, he decides to kind of pushed the company in a new direction in 1961. Um, and that was to make comics that were aimed at slightly older audiences. So not just young children. Um, and that was the first of those was the fantastic four, uh, which they launched in November, 1961. And, um, was the first time that like comic book heroes were sort of, you know, they'd always been like the, the Superman sort of like perfect image of, uh, uh, you know, masculinity often and, and, uh, um, you know, heroism and, and the, the fantastic four were sort of like they squabble with each other and they were kind of, you know, anti-heroes in a way, um, right, more human, more, much more, hu- you know, even though they had superhuman powers, much more human than the, uh, Superman of the DC, uh, franchise. Um, and, uh, and that really kind of set the tone and, and, uh, Marvel became much more, um, it, it really sort of expanded the market for what they were doing and what comic books, uh, as a whole, as an industry was. And, um, that was, that was their namesake. And so, you know, Spider-Man was sort of like the quintessential, like teenaged angsty, um, you know, <laughs> teenaged angsty oh, superhero. Boy, did we ever see that in Spider-Man too? Oh man. Yeah. The uh, the Sam Raimi one with uh, Tobey Maguire that was like, it was, I just remember that one scene where he's like emo. He's, he's got his hair dyed black and it's like over one eye and he's, um, yeah, just it just like uh, almost felt like jumping the shark already. Even though I didn't really think it jumped the shark till Spider Man three, but yeah, uh, totally. He was uh, ahead of his time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh. That's a, a big success for Marvel. And then, and then later in the 60s, in 1968, the first Marvel acquisition uh, change of control happens when Goodman decides to sell out and he sells the company to the Perfect Film and Chemical Corporation, uh, which was later renamed Cadence Industries. Um, and Marvel then became one of their subsidiaries uh, or underneath one of their subsidiaries called the Magazine Management Company. <laughs> Very, uh, very generic. Yeah, very generic. Um, 
Honestly, and, when I was reading through some of this, it felt like a laundry list of incredibly know, generic totally. conglomerate names. Well, I guess that's the thing when you, you're looking at a company that goes back like almost 80 years. <laughs> right, um, right. And uh, in, a, in a fun uh, twist of, of foreshadowing, uh, in the 1970s when, uh, when Marvel's owned by, um, by Cadence, uh, they actually strike a licensing deal with Lucasfilm. And they published oh, wow. the Star Wars comic books in the 70s and 80s. Wow, that's wild. Because to, to me, like, we've got a trilogy going on here. And and Pixar was actually owned by Lucasfilm in the early days. And yep. Lucasfilm and Marvel had a licensing agreement in the early days. And it's like, it's kind of amazing they all ended up under one roof and, and had this and kind of joint history up. along the way. Yeah, if only, uh, if only Steve Jobs were somehow involved. That should have been <laughs> our lie. <laughs> That's right. Uh, that would have been fun. Um, so, listeners, you know that Steve Jobs was not involved in Marvel. Um, and uh, so, in 1986, uh, Marvel changes hands again, and Cadence uh, sells the company to New World Entertainment, uh, the media company. Uh, and then New World undergoes some struggles and ends up selling it again shortly later to the billionaire Ronald Perlman in 1989 for 82 and a half million and uh in another fun bit of foreshadowing of what's to come perlman uh, gives a quote at the time he says it it being marvel is a quote mini disney in terms of intellectual property disney's got much more highly recognized characters and softer characters whereas our characters are termed action heroes but at Marvel, hmm. we are now in the business of the creation and marketing of characters. Boy, does that sound familiar. Sounds super familiar. Hmm. Um, so uh, Perlman's pretty ambitious, and he um, shortly thereafter actually ends up taking Marvel public, uh, and it becomes a public company, and then he starts expanding. And uh, so he took it public in 1991, and then in 1992, um, they actually buy the uh, the sports trading card company Fleer in 1992. Um, and then in 1993, uh, Marvel acquires uh, slightly less than half of a company called Toy Biz, which was a toy company um, that they also had a licensing deal with to create uh, action figures for um, for all the Marvel uh, superheroes and villains, and but, that comes. It's it's really interesting. They keep like vertically integrating and then unbundling, and vertically integrating and then unbundling. And it's it's interesting how like they m kind of fluidly move throughout partnerships and ownership of you know their their core asset being the characters, and then moving in and out of publishing and distribution and uh, merchandising and all those and different different adjacent things. or in the case of baseball cards, not so adjacent businesses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would love to see the prospectus on that uh, on that pickup. Yeah, what the rationale? Well, and that was in the middle of the baseball card bubble, um, which we will come back to again in one sec. But but Toy Biz also will be important in the future. Um, so they don't buy all of Toy Biz. They just buy uh, slightly less than, than half a share of the company. Um, and so things go along. And then a couple of years later, in kind of 95, 96 time frame, um, things aren't looking so good for Marvel. So they've expanded a lot. Um, the core comic book business, actually, there was a big bubble in comic books in the mid-90s, which doing the research for the show, I kind of like vaguely remembered. Um, 
but even more so in 1994, um, Major League Baseball went on strike. And this was like a huge thing. And, you know, people thought this was the, you know, the death of baseball, but it, it and it wasn't uh, happily for baseball, but it was definitely the beginning of the death of the baseball card industry. And Fleer, Fleer suffered huge losses um, when, uh, when this happened. Yeah. I mean, I remember that that was the, so I'm an Indians fan grew up in Cleveland. That was the first, uh, first year Jacobs field was open and, uh, they didn't get a full season in there. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that, man. Yeah. I yeah, remember that actually, strike so vividly and wasn't, um, I remember, you know, and obviously being, you know, a Seattle podcast, I was a huge, even though I didn't live in Seattle at the time, huge Ken Griffey Jr. fan. And, uh, he, I, I think I remember he was on pace to like shatter the home run record that year. And then the strike was, uh, the season right. was shortened I, by the strike. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you're right. Cause I think, uh, I remember that the Indians were really good too. And we were in the world series the next year and sort of growing up, I always thought like, well, it's weird that like the Indians had this new ballpark in 94. And I think we actually played, uh, 95 in the ALCS or the division series is when we played, um, the Mariners and, and Griffey was obviously instrumental in that. But I remember thinking like, how did we have a new ballpark in 94, but get into the world series in 95? And it didn't really occur to me till I was later, uh, you know, like late, later in the 90s, like, oh, duh, there was no playoffs in 94. Yeah. Like, can you, can you imagine like that if that happened with the NFL now? Like, oh yeah, there's no, no Super, Super Bowl. Bowl. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> um, it was uh it was terrible and like uh I was such a huge baseball fan growing up and it was um it was it was really a black mark on the on the sport. Um yeah. so uh Marvel's not doing so good. Uh people are speculating, you know, the company's in trouble, maybe it'll end up filing for bankruptcy. Uh, do, and, do you know why there was a comic book bubble? Like what were the, other than the whole like Fleer thing, what were the externalities creating the struggle for Marvel? I don't know. Um, I didn't do enough research on this. I, I wonder if it was related to just the whole, you know, the baseball card bubble, uh, which is probably even bigger of a bubble. I mean, I was a huge baseball card collector, as were so many of my friends at that point in time. And still in my parents' basement have boxes and boxes full of baseball cards that are now yep, worthless. Um, yep. That the, the, the market just got flooded. Um, and I wonder if a similar dynamic was playing out in the comic book industry. I could see that. Um, yeah. Um, so uh, there's all this speculation about the future of Marvel and uh, and comic book villain, as uh, Ben referred to him in the in the intro, Carl Eichen takes notice, and he and his firm start buying up some of the uh, debt that um, that Marvel had uh, with public companies, even with private companies. If you have debt uh, that uh, often trades other people not the people who loaned you the money can then sell the debt to other people and uh, folks like Carl Icahn this was this is a big part of their playbook is they buy uh, debt in companies that they think are troubled and with the hopes that uh, they're hoping that the company ends up filing for bankruptcy and then in court as debtors they can end up taking control of the company uh, the um, the the not so charitable term for this is, in the industry is loan to own um, or and, comic book uh, villain. Yeah, or or being a comic book villain. <laughs> <laughs> so um this and, and this all starts playing out in the press and uh and then at the end of 1996 in December, uh Marvel does end up filing for bankruptcy. And so this all goes to court and uh in early 1997, 
the court rules that Carl Icahn can indeed take control of the company, and he does. So Carl Icahn, comic book villain, is now head of Marvel. Um, it's, it honestly sounds like a Lex Luthor move. It totally does. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that would make this better is if uh, Carl Icahn were also CEO of DC Comics. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Uh, but alas, th- this is probably a good time uh, to... Uh, our listeners are... are uh, I'm sure they figured out by now. Uh, Carl Icahn is true. The Fleer thing is true. Um, the CEO of uh, DC owning a, a large number of shares in Marvel is false. That is false. So... Carl Icahn uh, now has control of Marvel, but there's just one problem. Carl Icahn didn't own all the debt. Uh, There are actually big Wall Street banks that had also loaned Marvel a lot of money, and uh, they still wanted their money back. So the court court case wasn't over, and the company still needed to officially reorganize and exit bankruptcy. So this is where Toy Biz ends up coming back into the picture, Uh, this, this toy action figure company. Uh, and it turns out it was owned by this guy named Isaac Perlmutter, who was an Israeli-American. And he ends up proposing a new plan to the creditors of Marvel uh, that involves Toy Biz putting up money uh, and paying back the creditors and then taking control of the company away from Carl Icahn. Uh, and the creditors and the courts actually decide to go along with this plan. So control of marvel gets wrested away from from the villain it's like the, it's like the comic book you know happy ending and uh the superhero isaac perlmutter comes in to save the day <laughs> and isaac actually still to this day is ceo of marvel oh, that's uh, a great story. even post acquisition all right so uh, what happens to toy biz then how does how does that uh, uh so toy biz gets folded into marvel um uh, i believe and uh and becomes part of the combined company so then at this point marvel owns the the ip to the characters um and and has a a merchandising division to actually sell sell the toys themselves yep uh i i believe that's i believe that's right um but it's still not like a you know it's not a disney scale uh consumer products division Um, so in the meantime something even more important for the future of marvel happens and that's that uh, I, I believe for a long time they'd been making diff- various types of films and movies about the franchises, um, mm-hmm. but uh, films based on Marvel franchises actually start to kind of catch on with the public and become pretty big movies. Um, and it actually starts, I did not realize this, in 1997, that year when Men in Black comes out. Men in Black apparently was a Marvel franchise. I had no idea. Oh, no way. Because I knew there were comic books, but I always assumed it was one of those like after the movie comics. No, uh, it was a Marvel franchise. Wow. uh, um, And then the, God, I watched that movie so many times when I was a kid. (laughs) Yeah. Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones was great. Absolutely. Heroes. Um, So Men in Black comes out, the first Men in Black comes out in 1997. Um, and 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 this was before Marvel Studios, right? This was Marvel yes. IP. So this being... this was exactly Marvel was licensing their IP to big movie studios, um, you know, to Fox, to Sony, to uh, to Time Warner, um, who were making these movies, big budget movies. Uh, mm-hmm. Blade, nineteen ninety eight, uh, and then the, and then the first really big one, X Men, 
two in the year 2000. Um, That's right. Spider-Man in 2002. Um, so again, Marvel's not making them these movies themselves, but obviously is noticing that, you know, collectively these movies are making billions of dollars. Really starting to take off. Yeah. And it was, it's, it's interesting to think about like there had been superhero movies for decades, right? I mean, like mm-hmm. we had a whole franchise of Batman movies. It's, it's not Superman like Superman movies. That's right. Yeah. Oh yeah. Christopher Reeve, who could forget. Yep. It's, it's not like we were new to this, but you know, like in, in the world today of like, you know, the, or even 2009, Iron Man grossed $580 million within yeah. Marvel Studios. Like, it wasn't that scale yet. It wasn't like every single blockbuster at the, at the box office is going to be a, a, a superhero film. So yeah. it's interesting to think about like what, what changed that, that like all of a sudden caused these, uh, superhero movies to become more and more of a sure thing for the studios to make. Yeah. I don't know. And it also kind of coincided. Well, I think the, the Superman and the Batman movies were always at least i remember kind of growing up thinking about like oh yeah like i remember the batman movies um when right. i was a kid but um but i think it was just those two were like the big franchises the dc franchises and and dc i believe not always but for certainly through all of these decades was owned by time warner and still is um so they were mm-hmm. part of a big major media company and had the resources to make these um you know big budget movies uh whereas marvel i don't think ever did until uh, until until this era. And so you see these superhero franchises that had been obviously had huge followings, but weren't like the mainstream, you know, um, to the extent that Superman and Batman were. Um, right. Now get these big film slates. I, I think the other thing that was happening is this is sort of the dawn, and, and I don't know how much one led to the other, um, sort of the dawn of like the sequelitis in, in Hollywood. Um, and oh, yeah. These, uh, and superhero movies, of course, uh, franchises lend themselves so well to sequels. Yep. Yep. Very true. I mean, as, as uh, ever since, you know, 1939, every single one of these, uh, these comic book franchises has issue after issue after yep. after issue. They're serials. Yep. Um, so it's perfect for, you know, in a world where Hollywood needs dependable franchises to make sequels, you know, what better place to look to than comic books? Yep. Yep. Um, so in 2005, after, you know, a few of these uh, huge successful movies based on Marvel IP have come out from other studios, uh, Marvel actually takes a really ambitious step um, to start Marvel Studios to make movies themselves. Uh, and um, so they raise $525 million in, uh, in debt in a credit facility from Merrill Lynch, um, ironically like right before Merrill Lynch went bankrupt in the in the in the recession um but they they get a a, a film financing um vehicle from from Merrill uh and create the really the first kind of major independent hollywood studio since kind of the dreamworks era um this was a this was a pretty big deal yeah and it's interesting to to think that um you know, that this was something they just sort of started and ultimately became like very quickly the largest part of their business. Absolutely. Yeah. So the and and also interesting, um, you know, they sort of when they announced this, uh, this was in 2005, 2006, when they were getting this set up, um, they announced that the plan was that they were going to release individual films of going to, you know, individual franchises, Iron Man and the Hulk, which were the first two movies that they end up releasing. Um, create these franchises and then they were going to tie them all together into a crossover film. So, which obviously 
they did for, under Disney. the Avengers. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but uh, but that was the plan all along. And interesting that um, Disney really you know has been hands off and let them let them operate that plan. Um, yeah, yeah. And thinking about so uh, in in making this move in starting the studio, they'd already licensed out so many of their characters to to. The, other studios for uh to make films and distribute and yep. so when you think and, about and like, they're they're even, really their top tier characters right right so let, i'll i'll list the um the characters that were no longer eligible for marvel to make their own films around spider-man the fantastic four silver yep. surfer wolverine the rest of the x-men yep deadpool uh yeah, the, the, there's others, but when you think about like, wow, okay, so all those are off limits, and what they've got is sort of like the second tier at the time. Like we don't think of them now because they're huge, you know, right. gigantic uh, blockbuster wins. But like Thor, Hulk, yep. Iron, Iron Man, Man. Yep. like that, like that's who they're left to work with, and then that's what they create the, the studio around. Yep, uh, totally. And um, and Iron Man was really uh, that was really the best that they had available, and that was the first film uh, that they made. And it came out in early 2008, and it ended up being okay. it Robert, tour de force from Robert Downey Jr. I remember seeing it in theaters. Such a great movie, the original Iron Man. Absolutely, uh, and actually, the year before, I think that was 09, and, and in 2008, they had the Hulk, which which uh, um, was about half of of what that yeah. film grows. But uh, that was a they actually both came out in 2008, uh, and um, ah. they came out like uh, they they made them concurrently. Uh, Iron Man actually came out a couple months before Hulk, um, oh. I believe, uh, at least according to Wikipedia, um, <laughs> and uh, which is always right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Iron Man made uh, 585 million uh, at the box office, so almost 600 million, which is uh, compared to films like The Avengers and uh, well, Iron Man three uh, and Frozen and other Disney movies, and um, certainly The Force Awakens that make a billion or even close to two billion. That doesn't sound like a lot, but at the time, that was a huge amount, even though it was only a few years ago. That's the um, beginning of an era. Beginning, really beginning of the superhero blockbuster era. Um, That's right. And and it sort of signals to like any potential uh, buyer of, uh, of Marvel stock, like there's a new way to value this company, and it's based on these numbers and has nothing to do with any of the other lines of business they're in. Yep. Um, so... As as you mentioned, uh, the Hulk comes out shortly thereafter and isn't the huge success that Iron Man is, but it's it's a pretty pretty successful movie. Makes uh, just under three hundred million um, and is very successful and kind of proves that audiences are interested in this kind of content and will come out even for you know non top tier characters if you can make good movies. Hmm. Um, so the next year in two thousand nine. Uh, before I believe there were, I believe they were intended to be five films on the slate that, um, that Marvel did with Merrill Lynch. Uh, but before any of the following ones can come out, August 31st, 2009 blockbuster deal, uh, Bob Iger and Walt and Walt Disney company announced that they're going to acquire Marvel for $4.2 billion. Um, which was quite a lot when you think back to the, to, um, when uh, Perlman bought Disney, granted it was in <laughs> in the late eighties, but it was a bankruptcy court. Uh, no, no, Perlman oh, bought it. Uh, Perlman bought it from uh, in the late eighties from uh, New World Entertainment. Uh, it was less than a hundred million. So you know, here we are, sort of twenty years later, uh, and we're talking four point two billion. Yep. 
Yep. And it's interesting that like, um, it's, there's, there was not a single new piece of intellectual property that mattered between those years. Yeah. Like all those characters had already been created and it was really all about a new way to leverage that same intellectual property that made it what 40 times, 40 plus times more valuable over that span of time. Yeah. Um, super interesting. I mean, it really was, it really was the films. Yeah. Yeah. And to put, to place a, um, to kind of like, uh, for listeners out there, a a 29% premium, um, was what was paid for, uh, for Marvel above what it was, uh, currently trading at. So while there was some scrutiny, like, oh my God, that's a huge, you know, 4.24 billion. That's a huge, ridiculous acquisition. It's, it's not that much more than what the public markets were valuing it at. And it actually is pretty much in line with other public company acquisitions that we've covered on this show. Mm -hmm. And uh, another thing that's important to think about, about this deal um, that uh, I think other folks who've written about it now and talked about it, it kind of lose context of a little bit. This was in the middle of the recession. Um, And so this was like perfect timing by, by Iger and Disney to buy Marvel um, because people were worried at this point, like, you know, our, and we were talking about box office numbers a minute ago, they were certainly depressed by the fact that we were in the middle of the recession and like people didn't have nearly as much disposable income as they were used to having earlier in the decade. That's right. And for even more perspective, it was just over half the price that they paid three years before for Pixar. So if you kind of look at this trend, they hadn't yet acquired Lucasfilm, but let's, let's simplify Disney to a, um, a content and distribution company, and they're basically out buying content. Um, you know, the, the part, part two of their, uh, the, the second big pickup that they made here, you know, they, they signaled that they were going to do this before. This was Iger's strategy mm-hmm. and, uh, it, it clearly had been working with Pixar. Yeah. And I mean, the, the Pixar, you know, famously, uh, Bob Iger's first board meeting as CEO, which was like his like second day on the job. Uh, he proposed to the board that he wanted to wanted to buy Pixar, and this was clearly how he kind of set the tone for his his tenure as CEO. And he's um, you know certainly hard to argue with his execution across uh, the three of these companies. Right, right, and it's, it's 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 if you're Disney and you're looking around and it's you know 2005, like all the valuable content that you don't own. That's like some of it's in Universal and some of it's like there's little pieces and pockets elsewhere. But the three other big powerhouses are Lucasfilm. Pixar and uh, and Marvel and yeah. you know went went in and over what how many years two thousand six to twenty twelve so over six years rolled them yeah. all up well and uh, you know also you know in keeping with the theme of the show or <laughs> half of the theme of the show now in, in acquisitions um, you know Iger took over as CEO of Disney uh, right after there had been this. Um, this hostile takeover attempt of Disney that actually Comcast uh, right before Iger became CEO uh, launched a hostile takeover attempt to try and buy Disney. And of course later, you know, five or six years later, they would end up acquiring NBC. Um, But this was like, I I have to imagine that um, living through that, the Disney board and Bob Iger and kind of entering his tenure um, thinking about, seeing consolidation in the media industry coming uh, and decided very actively deciding to be a consolidator as opposed to a consolidate T and looking around to see what they could buy. 
Yeah, and you look at the uh, what that aggressive strategy helped them do. I mean, who was competing with Disney in, in 2005 and who's even close to competing with them now? I mean, I think that that, that just totally worked. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, interestingly, uh, you know, Iger actually said in kind of the, the press quote at, uh, at the time of the Marvel deal, um, you know, he said Marvel's brand and its treasure trove of content will now benefit from our extraordinary reach. We paid a price that reflects the value they've created and the value we can create as one company. It's a full price, but a fair price. And absolutely, you know, we talked about this in the Pixar episode and especially in the Lucasfilm episode, but, um, you know, Disney's core competency and what they have that the other media companies don't have is that flywheel that um yep. you know that walt disney drew uh you know back in the early days of the company which is the ability to take great ip franchises like star wars you know like pixar like uh like marvel and and pump them through the flywheel and realize much more value out of it than they could on their own that's right and old school disney was creating it but new school disney has has pretty efficiently figured out how to bring in content they don't create into that flywheel yep. too yep um, and I think the, the the fourth piece of this stool that we haven't talked about yet because it wasn't an acquisition is the tremendous growth of, of the ESPN business inside of Disney. And I think the 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 four of those businesses together really uh really account for a lot of the um the, the growth and the dramatic change in share price between then and today. Yeah, and it's interesting too. I mean, uh, uh I hadn't thought about uh ESPN in this context, but you bringing it up and in uh, in the context of the flywheel, um Oh, I guess actually Disney was an acquisition. It was just a long time ago. Or yes, yeah, ESPN. Yeah, um, it was uh, through a pretty complicated history. That might be a fun show to do sometime. Yeah, um, ESPN is a super interesting corporate history. Um, but uh, the core ESPN business, I think, in a lot of ways, I mean, it was totally the golden egg for many, many years for Disney. But um, I think is much more challenged today than. It was a few years ago with cord cutting um, and uh, you know, linear television watching being much less of a thing. And obviously, Sports Center is still popular among many people. But I used to watch Sports Center every day, probably multiple times a day, and I haven't watched it in years now. Um, even though I still watch clips on Snapchat, um, <laughs> but uh, but you see this this strategy, and especially around film with ESPN two now with Thirty for Thirty. And some of the investments oh, yeah. they're making there. Um, yeah, I think about the yeah, OJ yeah. documentary and how great and ambitious that was. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. You're, you're totally getting into my tech themes. Ah, all right. Well, we'll stop now. We want to thank our longtime friend of the show, Vanta, the leading trust management platform. Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts. So frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. Yep, Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. 
Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe, and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com slash acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com slash acquired. And you want to move on to acquisition category? Uh, yeah, let's do, but uh, first just to wrap up quickly on uh, on the, the aftermath of the acquisition. So as we mentioned, um, Perlmutter remains the CEO of the company. The company stays in New York, um, so it's a fully autonomous subsidiary within Disney. Um, and, and like we said, basically, they've just continued to execute on the plan that they drew up in 2005 when they launched Marvel Studios. Um, and, and, and producing dramatically more, like their their scale now. I mean, they had like five or six in the pipeline when they were acquired. But I think you look at the, the, the pace of new Marvel movies coming out and new Marvel movies planned through the next few few years, like they're, they're, they're not letting up. Yep. And, and even, you know, so there's much more value to be realized from the company in the future. But even since the acquisition in 2009, um, the Marvel movies have generated almost $9 billion in revenue, um, <laughs> in, in box office revenue, which is crazy. Now, uh, that doesn't necessarily equal, certainly doesn't equal profits and, and profits for movies are Harder to get to um, than than pure revenue. We can we can get that data. Um, yeah, I think I think uh, Marvel estimated profit margins um, at least in the first eight films released. I actually pulled the stat uh, uh, under Disney were about a twenty three percent profit margin. Okay, so um, you know you call roughly sort of two billion ish, slightly more than two billion uh, in profit uh, so far from the movies. So that's half the purchase price right there. And that's just the box office. Uh, you know, not the, not the home video, not the merchandising, not the theme parks, you know, all that stuff. So, uh, totally. And I even, I, I grabbed another stat. I think this is, um, I think this is from, yeah, fortune article in 2015. One analyst said that by the time it was finished with the Avengers, Iron Man three and captain America and Thor sequels, Disney probably paid, uh, for the acquisition of the entire company. So I think it's, it's, uh, pretty quick payback period there. And yeah. uh, I think looking at that, that 22% profit margin and you look at the price tag of, of production now on these films, um, pretty expensive to make these huge blockbusters. Yeah. Well, you like need uh, 200 you need, million, 150 million. Yeah. You need, well, well, we should, we should delay some of this discussion until we, till we render our final grade, but um, all right. All right. Uh, let's, uh, let's jump into a uh, category. So as a reminder, we, um, Pixar, which was our very first episode on this show, we actually we said it was a business line, uh, and then Lucasfilm we said it was a product. Uh, so what is what is Marvel? Yeah, so I am going to foreshadow my uh, um, my tech themes and my conclusion a little bit here, but um, I think it was uh, two things. One is a business line. 
they they bought the um the business line of making the films they were able to scale that um you know we we talked about uh kind of our paying back the acquisition in a in a shortish amount of time um you know the studio itself but ultimately they have this asset in perpetuity of the characters and unlike and uh, in, in my opinion um the the reason why we didn't call well we didn't have asset yet in this this uh, categorization for for Pixar but um Pixar sequels don't hold up as well as the serialization that comic book characters lend themselves to mm, so yeah. un- unlike a lot of sequels which fatigue very often there's there's these like few in the world the James Bonds of the world that um that don't get tired because they're able to kind of keep reinventing it or they're the the stories are okay being formulaic so you kind of can keep experiencing the same um the same uh, tight plot line over and over again superheroes let themselves do that and the intellectual property uh um that i'm calling separate from the business line the intellectual property that is these characters are uh you know they're a, a true asset in perpetuity yeah interesting um Huh. Foreshadowing one of my tech themes a little bit too, but, um, I was going to be lazy on this one and say, oh yeah, totally a product, uh, just like Lucasfilm and being, you know, I think we called Lucasfilm the, the sort of juice that gets pumped through the pipeline of the flywheel. Um, and, uh, and I thought that this is too, and I, and I still think it is. Um, but it's an interesting insight on the, the serial, serial is serializability of superheroes and the assets of superheroes versus a Pixar, which as great as Pixar is, um, and I'm not excited for another toy story. Yeah, exactly. Like, like there's, it's kind of a harder business in a lot of ways because you're, you're betting yeah. on the capability of the team to keep producing new original, great stuff. Right. It's like your assets depreciate faster. Yeah. Or, or they, yeah, well, they, or there is no, I mean, they do do sequels at Pixar, but, um, but that's not the core of what it is. It's like you have to keep generating new, keep pushing the rock up the hill each time. Right. And actually it's funny if you look at the, uh, I was, I was about to make the point that, um, um, it is more expensive to create a, a Pixar film, uh, be, because you don't have the same reusability that you do from the nth, you know, superhero film. Um, it actually is, uh, the, the, the profit margin on, on Pixar films are higher. So hmm. to, to kind of combat the, the, um, point I just made, 23%, uh, uh, profit margins for Marvel, 27% profit margins for Pixar. And, uh, you know, render farms and, and illustrators are expensive, but not as expensive as flying helicopters into buildings. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, well, not that Pixar pays actors a lot too for their voice, but, um, yeah. I would imagine probably in aggregate in terms of money paid to actors, Pixar movies, I, I would have to imagine are less than a Marvel movie. Yeah. Yeah. I would think. Uh, interesting. Yeah. I like the, I like the asset categorization. I mean, I think it is definitely also juiced to pump through Disney's flywheel. Totally. Um, but it is a different kind of asset than certainly Pixar. Um, and then I think in a lot of ways, Star Wars too. Um, Star Wars is kind of like, or Star, tellingly, I called it Star Wars, Lucasfilm. Um, you can just call it Star Wars. Yeah, but it's, it is Star Wars, right? Whereas Marvel, um, is many of these franchises. Right, right, right. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a great point. It's like, if you look at the, um, the $4 billion price tag for Lucasfilm and the $4.2 billion price tag for, 
um, for Marvel, like think how many more characters it's like 800 plus characters or I think 500 plus at the time of acquisition in the Marvel universe and maybe 50 of which are recognizable by the American public. Yep. And you look at, look at star Wars and I don't think Lucasfilm was sort of looking, valuing themselves based on all those deep characters. And what we're seeing with the, the Disney powerhouses, they're sort of trying to make the Star Wars universe more serializable and more, um, kind of disparate with all these different, uh, um, stories that they're trying to tell that aren't with our, our, our favorite characters. And I'll be really interested to see yeah. not, not how Rogue One does. Cause I think that that's going to be, there's so much pent up demand for Star Wars that like, I want to see how the third or fourth non core yeah. Star Wars story does. And if, if Disney will be successful in kind of creating, uh, this sort of serial blockbuster out of Lucasfilm characters the same way they've been able to with, with Marvel characters. Yeah. It's interesting to think about. To think about these three acquisitions, which are obviously all fall within the same, you know, broad theme for Disney, but um, on a kind of spectrum from Pixar, where they're, uh, it's it's so much about the people and the creative process and creating individual new um, new creative works uh, to then kind of Lucasfilm sort of in the middle, where it's about the franchise, the one franchise of Star Wars, um, and uh, the cadence around that is uh, well. Before the acquisition, was very long cycles between any sort of new Star Wars content that would come out, and it's much faster right. now. Um, right, right, like multiple uh, decades. Yep, and 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 Lucasfilm is sort of about the people, you know. I mean, obviously, there's George Lucas um, and and some great leadership at Lucasfilm. Um, but, uh, but also, you know, about the franchise and then, and then you've got Marvel at the other end of the spectrum, which has had great business leadership, especially under Isaac, um, Isaac Perlmutter, but, um, you know, all of the, all of the talent that comes into the, the making the movies and even the artists of the comic books, like it's all, it's all third parties, you know? (laughs) Um, right. it's not, it's not like, it's kind of very, it's very different from Pixar. Yeah. Great point. Great uh, point. all right. Should we move on to what would have happened what otherwise? Happened otherwise? Yeah. So, um, I, I think Marvel was going to get acquired. Like we were in an era of consolidation where distribution was buying content Yep. and I don't know who else it would have been. 20th century Fox, Sony, um, seems like actually there's a lot of places they could have landed. It's kind of shocking to me that with um, um, the Pixar pickup in 2006 that someone else didn't see this coming and try to make a play for it sooner. Did Maybe other people, other studios, or I guess well, other... Well, especially uh, the other... Stu- well, I wonder if the other studios maybe um, just were a little bit lazy in their thinking because they were kind of having their cake and eating it too, right? in that they were getting Marvel movies in, in Spider-Man and in right. X-Men um, without having to actually buy the company. Um, and, uh, and it was only when, uh, when Marvel started making movies on their own that it became a really valuable company as itself. Yeah, that's true. And it really hadn't been long since, since Marvel Studios was around. The, the shocking thing is, like, how did no one else... 
I mean, oh, actually, here's a here's kind of an interesting question. If you're 20th Century Fox, or if you are Sony Pictures, and you see, um, let's say you could see the future and know that Disney was going to do this, do you try to do it sooner? Like, did yeah. people, A, not think Disney was going to do it, or B, not care that Disney was going to do it? Yeah. Well, here's an interesting thing that we, we haven't talked about yet so far, but um, on the surface, uh this actually wasn't the most natural fit with Disney, um, uh, which actually I think is one of the reasons why Bob Iger and Disney really wanted to do this acquisition. Um, but Disney was always, you know, kind of like princesses and uh, animated movies and, uh, and then Pixar, which definitely fit into that mold. Um, and, uh, you know, in terms of their strategy with children, you know, super gender stereotypes here, but I think this is the way a lot of, at least historically, a lot of people at Disney have thought about this and in the media industry that Disney like owned little girls, you know, but they didn't, you know, and little boys too, but like they didn't have as to a much lesser extent, much to a much lesser extent. And that this was Disney's play for, uh, for little boys too. Um, I mean, what's, what's more attractive to little boys than superheroes? Um, in, in total, you know, old school gender stereotyped uh, ways. <laughs> uh, speaking as a massive Frozen fan myself, right, right. <laughs> um, you know, I still haven't seen it. I uh, oh, you got to change that. It's so good. I know, I know. As a as a uh, admitted Pixar fanboy, I really should. Um, not not that it's Pixar, but like you know, to to see how that's entered the rest of the Disney umbrella. Yeah, and it's interesting to think too. I can't imagine this had that much impact on Perlmutter and Marvel because it was, they were much more business executives than sort of founder creative types. Um, but Iger and Disney have developed this reputation now with these three acquisitions as like excellent stewards of, of franchises. They're kind of like the Warren Buffett's of, of creative, of creative content and businesses. Right. You know? Right. Um, when, I think, yeah, in the, in the, um, Pixar animation, we or the, uh, I think it was the Pixar. Uh, no, in the Lucasfilm acquisition, we uh, compared it to Facebook. That that Disney yeah. was really good at leaving their um, their sort of disparate leaving creative that direction they acquire on their yeah. own. Which again, a little bit was why it didn't. On the surface, it was a little, wow, Disney buying you know Marvel. Like Marvel's much edgier than Disney, but yeah. to- they've let it be totally separate. Um, but this was you know in the Lucasfilm acquisition. Uh, you know, George Lucas said to Bob Iger before he sold, like, if I'm going to sell it, I would only sell this to, to you and to Disney. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and Steve Jobs too, right? Like, it's hard to imagine, uh, right. Pixar and Jobs selling to anybody except Disney. Right, right. Yeah. So two, two other questions here then for you that I would pose. One, uh, is there a fourth, like, will we see mm-hmm. Disney make a play for another large piece of content? And I've been sort of racking my brain to think who that could be um, or who is the content that we don't think of as the big content yet as the up and comer. And then two, while well, you're, you're sort of noodling on that, um, I generalize this to uh, distribution, combi- uh, combined distribution content company buying more content and pumping it through their distribution. Do we see that in other verticals? Like, are we seeing that in tech outside of entertainment or any other forms of content being bought by um, distribution plus content companies? Hmm. Interesting questions. Well, on the second, 
I mean, to a certain extent, I think we see it a little bit with Facebook and um, and Instagram. I mean, it's very different. Like, I think Instagram would have grown hugely on its own. Um, but no question that on the ad sales side of the house, being able to just plug in Facebook ad sales into Instagram was hugely valuable there. Um, mm-hmm. On the first question, you know, I, I'm not close enough to... Uh, have a super informed opinion on on that front. But one thing that just popped into my mind, especially because the company is struggling a bit now, um, what about Nintendo? Mm. Boy, that's like the, you're right, that that is like the, the another huge treasure trove of IP that yeah. as we saw with, with Pokemon Go, I mean, you, you, you take an existing piece of technology or relatively existing with the... Niantic, um, and, uh, and slap highly valuable IP like Nintendo's on top of it. And you can create something, you know, that go, that the world goes crazy for, right? We can yeah. have a debate on how lasting that is, but. Yep. Um, but certainly the IP that Nintendo has in, in Mario and Zelda, uh, and so, you know, even, I mean, they're in a lot of ways, like the parallels to Marvel are very similar. You know, you've got lesser known stuff like Kid Icarus and, um, uh, you know, and then you've got Pokemon, obviously, which is super well known. Um, man, what would if if all of that IP were liberated from the challenged business model of like gaming console hardware sales? Um, right, right. Yeah, what what could you do with it? And what this is interesting, like almost all of this, uh, probably excluding Pixar, but at this point, Pixar is a little kind of an older company too. Like, what IP? is super valuable and a major part of the American consciousness and new. Cause all this is like, you know, buying the star Wars stuff from 77 and buying the Marvel stuff from the forties and fifties and yep. it, it, buy Nintendo from the eighties. Like where, where is, you know, like where's 2010s Mario and like, does that exist in the era of the internet and shortened attention spans and social media where, um, individuals are their own content creators and content is short-lived yeah well uh maybe it lives on facebook yeah and it's like it's funny like one you know and all the rumors of of maybe disney buying twitter yeah um and then that sort of fell through probably because of pricing issues uh like none of these platforms own the ip there's like shared licenses between the the tweet and the um and uh, between Twitter and the originator of the content, but like there, it's hard to think of new intellectual property that everyone cares about. Like everyone cares about their little filter bubble of content. I think about, or or like Twitch too, right? Like, um, right. All the big, um, big entertainment franchises of the last five years, certainly, uh, I think you would, you know, they're, they're apps, right? They're not, they're not IP themselves. They're platforms. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like all the, all the major value in the recent stuff is the platform on which, uh, massively distributed democ- democratized IP is created and distributed, not, not actually being a content powerhouse. Yep. Other than, you know, actually we are seeing this with Netflix, right? Netflix, Amazon, um, they, they have the distribution and we're previously licensing the content and now we're creating content in-house. And that's a pretty good allegory for sort of question number two there of, of, uh, who else is, um, is, uh, is doing this these days outside mm-hmm. of Disney. 
Yep. And I guess Netflix isn't necessarily buying up other companies that have content, but we are seeing heavy investment by the people that have the pipes in creating their own content. Yep. Well, actually, uh, you know, um, there are plenty of IP franchises out there being created and, and great ones. Um, I should have thought of this. Uh, Jenny and I, with my parents, uh, over Thanksgiving weekend, went to see uh, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Uh, which oh, Harry Potter, we yeah. loved, um, but yeah, Harry Potter, of course, uh, uh, another, yeah, totally. And that's the last couple decades or decade yeah. and a half, uh, or at least younger than some of these other franchises that, right. we, that Disney's been buying. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's not a fair, but fair also, you know, that was really created, um, not pre internet, but certainly pre-social media. And, um, you know, the first Harry Potter, uh, I don't think, J.K. Rowling or Harry could have, you know, peered into the future and uh, seen uh, the world that we'd live in today. Yeah, absolutely not. Uh, and in fact, you know, fun, like uh, uh, Ben and I both got iPhone 7s recently. And uh, uh, one of the, I don't use it a ton, but just one of the sort of delightful features on it that I enjoyed discovering is the live photos, you know, the, the Harry Potter photos. Yeah, right. It's kind of a, for those of us who are on the off cycle, or I guess the on cycle and didn't have the six, I, I, I just discovered live photos too. And you're like, whoa, these are, uh, these are weird when I send them to people and they They're can pictures get way too that much moved. context. Yeah, yeah. yeah totally. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Should we move into tech themes? Yeah, totally. So, uh, the one uh, the, I've got one that's based on a stat. So of the top 10 grossing films in 1981, Seven of them were original content. Raiders of the Lost Ark, Arthur, Stripes, Cannonball Run, Chariots of Fire, Four Seasons, Time Bandits. You've got one that's an adaptation on Golden Pond, and then you have two sequels, Superman 2 and For Your Eyes Only. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to 2011, so um, three decades later. Mm -hmm. I'll read you the, the top 10 grossing films. Harry Potter 8, Transformers 3, Twilight Saga 4, Hangover Part 2, Pirates of the Caribbean 4, Fast 5, Cars 2, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Thor, Captain America. So that is eight sequels, two adaptations, and zero original pieces of content. Yeah, all of them franchises. Yeah, and it's fascinating to see the shift of... Uh, the the playground that is the movie studio, the movie theater, the the whole, all of Hollywood as a, a feature film production, the creativity and originality is is um it's not happening there anymore. It's happening elsewhere, mm-hmm. and we're in this era right now simultaneously of of a great TV renaissance. There's every every season there's like brilliant dramas on with you know uh, Hollywood acclaimed actors and and best in class writing and um. Uh, you know, there was Mad Men, there was The Sopranos, mm-hmm. like we're leading up to this and I'll, I'll say if there's one I'm watching, that's my car about that I don't want to mention yet. But like, uh, we're, all of the experimentation has moved to cheaper things, um, TV or, you know, YouTube or, or social media. And I'll, I'll, and the, the, um, Hollywood is, is the way to go and make a billion dollars off of, uh, sure things. Because if you're going to go pour a couple hundred million in, you want to get, big big money out and you're not willing to take a chance yep um it's interesting i think that the question for me that that begs and i've been thinking about 
even starting to do the research and as we've been doing the episode, um, for all the, um, the justifiable admiration, uh, deserved admiration that I think we're keeping on, on Marvel and Disney here, I think there is one really key existential risk. And that's, you know, if and when the pushback to this dynamic comes from the public, you know, uh, how many yeah. sequels, and people have been asking this for years, and so maybe it'll never come, um, but how many sequels can we take? You know, how long are superhero movies going to be in vogue? Um, you know, is this just a very extended fad cycle that we've been living in? Like in, in 10, 20, 30 years, will we look back on this and be like, man, that was like leisure suits. Like, remember the superhero movie days, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, I just wonder, you know, like, I, I don't know. I don't have a good answer to it. Well, yeah. And if it's, I guess it's interesting to like, if, uh, if this is like a permanent thing, what changed in the world that um, like what piece of technology or what societal norm shift or something changed that made it so that um, it, we were, well, maybe it's this, maybe it's, we're actually capable of, of creating something that resonates so strongly with, with, uh, um, people's nostalgia and it, we're actually capable of creating multiple billions of dollars of revenue on a single film. Therefore, we're going to spend all the money to produce that thing. Therefore, we're not going to take chances. Yeah. And, it's like and, maybe, and producing it, those films costs hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. So it's like maybe the technology got good enough, both in distribution and production, where it was possible to spend that much money on making a film and it was possible to spend um, to, or to earn that much from instant global distribution that, um, you know, we actually, we actually are seeing it come to fruition and it was only technology mm. limited before. Yeah. And, and the flywheel like Disney of, you know, consumer products and theme parks and, <laughs> yeah. you know, when you're investing in an IP as something as an entity like Disney, like, um, that is a huge investment. You really can't, uh, and, and, and they do take risks and, you know, have failed on stuff like, um, what was that one? They had a couple live action movies that were total flops, like right around the time that they bought Marvel. Um, which, which is interesting. They're, they're uh, taking big them. risks, but they're flopping. Right? Yeah, right, right. Um, but, but they, you can't afford to have too many of those flops. Right. And I wonder if like, you, you know, you get a few of those that are big risks that are flopping and then you just get scared away from doing it. Yeah. And you and you start pushing all your your uh your effectively prototyping down into cheaper cheaper distribution mediums. Yeah, it's interesting though. I mean, like where you know, as you said, so much there's so much innovation and a renaissance going on in the television format right now. Um, is there or will there be something similar in the you know film format? I mean, obviously, there's independent film and there's lots of innovation going on. Um, but uh, but not at the not at the you know kind of mass audience scale that something like Netflix and Amazon has allowed risk to be taken in television and still have the ability to a channel to distribute that to a mass audience. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I think sort of the same thing has happened with music, where there's like a psychological thing where we love the things that other people love and we all love having the same darling and the same heroes and like the same sort of music feels good to us. That feels good to the other people around us. And 
with global distribution happening so quickly and so cheaply, um, you, you have the ability to achieve much more sameness and mm-hmm. have much more people agree on what the best thing is. And it lead, we like to think that we have independent taste, but a lot of the time we're, we're sort of just like looking to hear from people like, Oh, what's the best, you know, who's the Taylor Swift right now. Yep. And that's why we're getting so many fewer. It's like there didn't, except for like the Beatles, like there was never like, the Beyonce, the Taylor Swift, they were much more distributed and there were many yep. more um, people that could make it big. And now there's like this echelon of people that you can count on the on, on one hand who are like these super phenomenon, phenomenas. Yep. And uh, I think the same thing's sort of happening in movies. Yep. And well, and this, uh, this, uh, this totally bleeds, uh, leads super well into my tech theme, which is um, something I've been thinking about. I've been reading uh, this great book that came out... Uh, came out uh, last year, I think, uh, or a couple years ago, uh, called Sapiens um, hmm. by by this guy, Yuval Noah uh, Harari. Um, and it's a great book. Uh, and it's about, um, it's sort of a, uh, a um, uh, biological time history of Homo sapiens uh, and how, um, you know, our, uh, our species came to take over the world, basically. Even though there were there were, there are no longer, but there were other uh, species of the genus Homo, uh, Neanderthals and many others, uh, but uh, Homo sapiens sort of quote-unquote won, and, and you, know, you could argue now are destroying the planet, but um, certainly have taken over the planet. Um, what like actually differentiates us from other Homo species uh, and from the rest of the animal kingdom, and he argues that the the primary thing is our ability to uh, believe in, create and believe in fictions, um, he calls it, which are like, um, you know, a, a reality is like there is a lion over there, run, you know. But a fiction mm-hmm. is like there is a company and uh, there is a uh, story and, um, you know, this uh, um, we are, you know, the Internet is a fiction, right? But like it's not that it's not real. It's very real. Um, but it's not something that any other, uh, species could comprehend. Uh, and so that, that kind of makes me think about like IP and, uh, exactly what we were just talking about. Like as the internet has spread communication, uh, instantly and globally, um, you know, are we seeing these major blockbuster franchises just continue to consolidate because of the power of these fictions? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a great point. Heady stuff for Marvel. <laughs> I highly, rec- highly recommend the book. Not my carve out for the <laughs> week, but because uh, I'm not done with it yet, but great book. Cool, cool. You want to grade it? Let's do it. So an interesting stat that I found when I was looking through all this, uh, if you look at the first eight films from Marvel post-acquisition and the first eight from Pixar post-acquisition, um, Marvel made about $6 billion gross, Pixar made about four and a half. Um, costs of creating them are fairly similar. The box office profit from Marvel is about 1.2 billion versus 600 million. So there's like this interesting thing where Marvel does phenomenally better at the box office. But over the long term, Marvel's home video sales are about 400 million and Pixar's are 1.6 billion. 
And for there, there's an interesting thing that happens where with Pixar films, like people get attached to that one character and that one storyline, and they just continue to watch and buy that film forever. And when you look at the Marvel movies, like even just me thinking about like, what would I rather watch? Toy Story 3, which like, even though that's a sequel, like that has its own storyline that I can remember and I'm, I'm emotionally attached to, or like, do I care about owning or even like, you know, buying and watching again on uh, on a streaming service or from Amazon, like Iron Man 2. And you can sort of see like that, that these serialization uh uh, films don't have lasting value or, or yep. nearly as much yep. as, as, as the Pixar ones do. And so I went back and listened and, you know, I have an, I have an A, not an A plus for Pixar. Um, and I think that it's fair for me to, to say Disney, uh, great acquisition, almost a necessary one. I, we'd, we'd be sitting here saying like, you were fools not to, to buy Marvel, but, um, it's an A minus to me. It's, it's not as good as, as the, the Pixar acquisition. And, um, I think the, the, the characters are, are brilliant IP for a long time. I think they've basically already recouped the cost of that, that $4 billion outlay. And, uh, we'll see what they can do with the, uh, the, the character intellectual property, because unlike Pixar, that, that those already created assets on a shelf will just keep, um, keep creating value for them with, uh, with um, the assets that they have from uh, from Marvel, from, from these characters and this intellectual property, they're going to have to keep pouring cash in to ca- get cash out. Yep, uh, I think we found that same infographic uh, that I was uh, I, I I had it copied in my notes and I was looking at it too. <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting too to think about uh, <laughs> our grading uh, benchmark throughout this uh, throughout the life of this show. What uh, you mean, Instagram? Yeah, well, we start, well, we, well, no, I was going to not predict the evolution of our benchmark. Oh, um, yeah. You know, I think yeah, Instagram yeah. is still one of, if not the top on, on the benchmark, but I keep thinking about to, to next and, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I don't think you can argue that that's not the greatest acquisition of all time. Uh, yeah. you know, when you create a trillion dollars of value, it's hard to top <laughs> that. Um, but, uh, also makes me think a little bit about like the, as cool as as much as we love you know ip and these fictions and what we were what i was just talking about in in uh, media and movies and these franchises the value that you can create in technology is so much more like the leverage is so much higher than yeah. you can get from the media industry or really any other industry um you know this this is why technology companies are so valuable you know 13 people at instagram can create many many billions of value you can't make <laughs> you can't make Iron Man three with thirteen people, um, or and, and, or the Iron Man theme park. And reiterating something we talked about last episode, last quarter, Facebook's operating margin went from thirty two percent to forty five percent on the incredibly large revenues that they have as a mature company, like yeah. technology. That is yeah. why technology companies are worth so much, and and you just can't pull a lever to make the twenty three percent. Uh, profit margin from uh, from these Marvel films into something you know 1.5x that. Yep, yep. Um, and of course, there's a dark side to that too, as we also talked about <laughs> on the Facebook you know episode. Like um, you know, you don't create nearly as many jobs when you're pulling that right. technology lever. Uh, but right, anyway, right. we're we're getting off track here. Um, I agree on a minus, and I think about it in terms of lasting impact to disney uh and sustainable value creation within disney 
and thinking about these three franchise, these three companies that they acquired, Pixar, you know, Marvel, Lucasfilm, um, I think in a lot of ways there is the most risks to the future value of Marvel. Um, and it's, it's in, you know, will superhero, because it's a, a portfolio of superhero franchises, will superhero franchises continue to be as popular? You know, I think so. They've been popular for 100 years, but how popular will they be? Um, you're totally indexed to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lucasfilm is all about Star Wars. Um, you know, and Star Wars, uh, you could argue you have even more risk indexed to that. However, you could probably also argue it is one of, if not the single most <laughs> uh, uh, beloved franchise in the entire world of all time. Um, so they were buying something very specific there. Um, but then Pixar really was, you know, they were buying a, a process and, uh, a, um, you know, both a people and a process, uh, that they've applied to their whole film and creative business. Um, so I think for, uh, both the reasons you said, Ben, and, and those reasons, I think Pixar needs to be rated higher than, um, than Marvel in this Disney trilogy. Um, so I'm going to go, I'm going to go a minus for Marvel. Cool. 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 All right. Uh, follow ups. Follow ups. Uh, uh, one real quick follow up. Uh, spectacles have launched and, right. uh, people think they're cool. People do. Snap Inc. would love, uh, if any listeners, um, have them would love uh love to hear your your comments in slack or email us at acquired fm at gmail.com um we haven't made it to a vending machine yet no no and my god evan spiegel is a uh a product marketing genius i think uh um (laughs) launching them what in a, a a custom vending machine in la and then that going away and of course selling out immediately and having a huge line and then popping one up uh where was the one in the kind of like Great Plains area? Like uh, Tulsa, I think. And then on the Grand Canyon. And then once people are saying, where is it going to be next? Then having a store in New York City that just has the vending machine in the back of the store. Yeah. And like, I, I just wonder what's next. And I maybe we'll, maybe there's even something before this uh, this show goes live. But um, yeah. Spectacles I, in space? yeah like doing doing everything right like you could totally see other companies being like okay we have to work with retailers to make sure there's enough enough of these things available and it's it's totally just like demand generation uh at its finest and brand building and also the fact that like from all accounts the product is right and has like a good use case and and people like enjoy using it and say it's good like talk about controlling the message and really giving people confidence that that they're onto something when they're about to go on this ipo road show yeah um super cool i can't wait to try them um yeah. all right hot takes uh this is less of a hot take and more of a uh more of a congratulation to friends but uh hightower announced uh very very recently if not today as we're recording this um which is a startup in new york with lots of seattle roots uh, that they are merging with VTS in a deal valued at three hundred million. Yeah, huge congratulations to uh, to Donald DeSantis and that that whole team. Um, really, like 
really cool story. Startup weekend guys uh, got together actually to, to gel as a team at a startup weekend, um, moved to New York when it was very clear that um, to be in commercial real estate, they should they should be in New York. Really just nailed product market fit quickly, built a great team. And, uh, um, you know, this is not the end. It's the, it's a, a reported estimated $300 million merger with um, their competitor. And the, the the Wall Street Journal article that we'll link to likens it kind of to... Um, to uh, the Zillow Trulia merger, Trulia, yeah, but awesome, awesome, awesome to see uh, see it happen for that company. Yeah, and um, great to have uh, uh, Startup Weekend alums. I mean, Startup Weekends played uh, uh, as an organization and end events such a huge role in been in my lives and careers. And um, uh, whether it's Rover.com uh, getting started at Startup Weekend or uh, Ben uh, Ben meeting well leading. Uh, indirectly to us meeting and uh, yep. uh, our careers PSL and, and, yep, and yeah. PSL and Madrona. Um, I've got uh, a really uh, gushing blog post about how much how awesome Startup Weekend is on my blog at some point. If anybody actually wants to check that out, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> should we move on to carveouts? All right, carveouts. Cool. So uh, there's going to be some people who are like, I knew this is what he was going to say uh, earlier on when I was hinting at this, but I am so into Westworld. It's a HBO show based on a Michael Crichton book, which then got turned into a movie in the 70s with Yul Brenner as a cowboy. Um, and I don't want to say too much about it now, but if you um, if you like the concept of where is AI and robotics going and you like really high production value uh, entertainment, it's it's uh, created by J.J. Abrams and, and Jonathan Nolan, who, of course, worked on all the, the, the recent Batman films and um, The Prestige and, uh, uh, yeah, a bunch of great films. Um, you you got to watch it. It's so good. And um, I just signed up for HBO Now, and it's, like, trivially cheap, and you get a month free. So um, highly recommend it. Technology, technology, and superheroes all in one. Yep. <laughs> um, my carve out for the week, uh, real quick. Uh, I I don't think I've done this before uh, on this show, um, but I should have because I love it. Um, super cool app called Overdrive, which is uh, which is a way to digitally um, through an app and through your Kindle connect with your local library and uh, borrow books, uh, borrow eBooks and audiobooks from your local library and then read them on your Kindle or on your smartphone um, and listen to the audiobooks uh, for free with your library membership. And uh, I actually had started using this a few years ago, kind of forgot about it and picked <laughs> it up again uh, earlier this year. And it's just like uh, removing that little bit of friction to, you know, not that ebooks are very expensive, but audiobooks are. Um, yeah, I'm reading like four or five times as many books as I used to because of it. So highly recommend it. Go sign up at your local library, support your libraries and use overdrive. True that. This is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So Crusoe as listeners know by now is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy, they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. 
Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. And these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where, quote-unquote, energy happens, as opposed to the other hyperscalers, such as AWS and Google and Azure, who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company, or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower-cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads... Go to crusocloud.com slash acquired, that's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com slash acquired, or click the link in the show notes. All right, that's all we've got. If uh, if you aren't subscribed and you want to hear more, you can subscribe from your favorite podcast client now. Um, if you're a longtime listener, or uh, even if you've just picked us up and, and you really like us, um, we don't ask for much, but we would really, really love if you'd uh, share about us on Twitter, share about us on Facebook, leave a review. It's uh, it's how we grow the show, and uh, it's how we can um, reach more people and do more things. So thank you so much for being a listener, and we will uh, hear you next time. We'll see you next time. Who got the truth? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Who got the truth now? Huh.